Okay, you ready? You can hear me okay? Great, we're on? Perfect. Awesome. Let's go. I'm Peter Little, lead pastor at Christ Pacific Church in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. And you're listening to our Sunday Sermons podcast. To learn more about us or to subscribe to this podcast, visit us at cpchb.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome uh, to worship. I know um, Britt and uh, Robin and, and Jericho have all welcomed you, so I'll add my voice to the mix. Welcome to Christ Pacific. Um, for those of you who are online, welcome. Glad you can join that way. Um, today's a, a special day. Well, every day is a special day because it's the day the Lord has made, and we're going to rejoice and be glad in each and every day. But um, in addition to just being a fantastic day because God made it and gave it to us, um, today we're going to celebrate communion. So we typically do this on the first Sunday of the month. That's what this table is all about. So a little bit later in the service, uh, we're going to invite you to um, gather around the Lord's table and celebrate communion Uh, as we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and the inbreaking of his kingdom. Uh, So we're going to do that a little later in the service. That's what this table is about. If um, you're new or visiting and wondering, um, hey, that's not usually there. Uh, You're right. It's um, only there once a month, typically. Um, The gentleman on the screen in front of you is um, Gordon Fee, Dr. Gordon Fee, and he uh, is has been known to be the, uh, the scholar on fire. That's kind of a nickname that he earned himself. Uh, Dr. Gordon Fee, Gordon Fee uh, is before you on the screen right now. I want to talk about him a little bit because um, he, uh, he died on Tuesday. He went to be in his eternal home right next to Jesus. Um, and uh, Fee had a pretty big impact, continues to have a big impact on my life, on my teaching and my preaching. Um, So if you've never heard of Gordon Fee or never read anything he's written or heard anything he said, um, if you've been here and if you've heard me preach, um, you have learned from Gordon Fee uh, because of his influence on me. So uh, Gordon Fee had a a Pentecostal Pentecostal background, which I just meant that he had kind of a focused appreciation for the work of the Holy Spirit um, in the world. But to, unlike many of his uh, Pentecostal friends and colleagues, uh, Fee uh, believed that the life of the mind and its uh, attendant serious scholarly uh, biblical work, uh, biblical scholarship, um, was not only necessary, but was actually an act of worship. That applying his mind and all the best that God has given him uh, up here to the work of understanding the scriptures was not only necessary, but was actually a holy act of worship. And so he would say that thoughtful attention um, to the context and the history and the form of the scriptures, uh, that this activity of study would draw us farther up into God's heart and farther into God's presence. And it was that conviction that fueled his, uh, his studies um, at USC. 
Gordon Fee became a professor at Wheaton College. Then he was a professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in the Boston area. And then finally, I'm at Regent College in Vancouver where I did my graduate studies. And that's where I got to know um, Gordon Fee's work. He wrote a lot about the process and goal of biblical interpretation. How do we interpret the Bible? And, and actually, what's the goal of interpreting the Bible? And he wrote this wonderful little book. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Uh, except for the Bible, that was probably, uh, that probably continues to be the most influential book that I uh, have read. So he wrote, I'm not in that book, but somewhere else, he wrote this. He said, we bring our exegesis, um, that's a fancy word for biblical interpretation, right? So uh, the act of interpreting the scriptures, that's uh, exegesis. Because, you know, I mean, scholars, they always got to come up with some complicated term to explain things, right? We bring our, um, our biblical interpretation to fruition when we ourselves sit with unspeakable wonder in the presence of God. In other words, intellectually integrated approaches to the scriptures lead us into wonder. They lead us into awe. They lead us into worship. So that the life of the mind, when it's applied to understanding God's word, is an act of worship as it draws us into God's presence and into God's hearts, God's heart. And that's why he would say that biblical interpretation is a touch of lightning. And I hope today, as we study the scriptures, as we dive into Mark chapter 2, I hope and I pray that you would be touched by lightning today. That you would be awakened to God's presence and work as we attend to his word in Mark chapter 2. That you would be thunderstruck, surprised, lit up because of what God is saying in his word. So let's pray and then uh, we'll attend to Mark chapter 2. Gracious and living God, we thank you that you spoke long ago that we have a record of your word here in our scriptures and that your word is not dead, but your word is alive because you continue to speak to us through your word. And so speak to us today. I pray, God, that we would be, that we would experience a kind of touch of lightning, that our spirits would be awakened to the work of your Holy Spirit, that we would be thunderstruck, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 13 to 17. It'll be on the screen in just a second so you can follow along. Um, or uh, if you've got a Bible with you, open it up to Mark chapter 2, verse 13, and uh, follow along. So uh, here we go, Mark 2, verse 13. Then Jesus went out to the lakeshore again, and he taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? 
When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. This is God's word for us today. So Jesus went out to the lakeshore on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, and he taught the crowds. What was he teaching? No idea. We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us here. I mean, we could, we could guess based on a number of things that Jesus taught on a regular basis, but Mark, who wrote this account, doesn't appear to have much of an interest in the content of Jesus' teaching. And it's not that Mark doesn't care about what it is Jesus is teaching. It's just that Mark is supremely interested in the effect of Jesus' teaching. What happens when Jesus teaches? How does Jesus' word change people's lives? What action takes place after the words come out of Jesus' mouth? That's what Mark is keenly interested in. He's interested in the action. That's why I've called this, uh, this series as we walk through Mark's gospel, uh, Gospel Action. Because it's all about the action. And that's what Mark is focused on here. So Jesus teaches. We don't know what he was teaching. But what was the effect of his teaching And it turns out there was an enormous effect on Levi and a whole bunch of his pals. So Jesus' word, it informs, it transforms, and it performs. I first heard these three words together uh, about Scripture from uh, pastor and Regent College professor Daryl Johnson. And what he means by that is this. First of all, the Bible informs us. Right? It gives us information. We, we get informed about who God is and, and how God was actively engaged with God's people throughout history. The Bible gives us information about who Jesus is and what he taught and what happens when he would teach and show up on the scene. We learn all sorts of information about God and about the world and about reality in the Bible. The Bible informs us, but unlike a science textbook or a history textbook, the Bible doesn't just transfer information into our brains. The word of the Lord also transforms us. Something that your science textbook, the best ones out there, just cannot do. The Holy Spirit illuminates the words on the page so that these are not just black ink on a white page. These are not just words, but these are the very word of God, and they change us. They transform us. The word of God has a tendency to transform our worldview. We begin to see the world with different glasses, different lenses on. Our values become changed, transformed. Our character is transformed. Ultimately, our allegiance is changed as we engage God's scriptures Here's a couple of examples how God's word, how Jesus' teaching specifically, uh, transforms us. Jesus asked a man who had been ill for 38 years, do you want to be made whole? There's some clues in the story in John chapter 5 that this man uh, maybe um, enjoyed some of the benefits of being ill. We're not really sure, but it seems like that might be the case. And Jesus asked him that probing question, do you want to be made whole. And that question utterly changed that man's life, transformed him. Where's your husband now? Jesus asked the Samaritan woman at the well. 
That was an incisive question. It cut through that particular woman's heart and it transformed her life. She became one of the most effective evangelists and one of the first evangelists as she went back into her village and began to tell everybody, come and see a man, in other words, Jesus, who told me everything about my life. Do you love me? Jesus asked Simon Peter. Do you love me? Peter had denied even knowing Jesus three times. And so Jesus, in an act of mercy and grace, asks Peter, do you love me? Three times. And that simple question transformed Peter, who had been a coward He was so cowardly, he wouldn't even admit knowing Jesus because Jesus was getting busted. He was in the process of being arrested and tried and ultimately crucified on a cross. And Peter didn't want to get busted as well. And so he just denied even knowing Jesus. He was a coward. But later, Jesus asks him, do you love me? And those simple words, that simple question cut to his heart. And it transformed Peter into one of the most courageous preachers of the early church. The word of the Lord transforms us, but it doesn't even stop there. It doesn't stop just at transformation. It goes even farther than that. And the word of God actually performs the thing that it says. Here's what I mean by that. Think about this for a minute. We saw a couple weeks ago that Jesus um, was interacting with a man who was suffering from leprosy or some kind of skin disease. And so Jesus does what nobody else would do. Jesus goes and he touches the man. And then he says to him, be made clean. And what happened? Do you remember? He was made clean. His leprosy left him immediately. Jesus said the word and it happened. Jesus' words perform the things that they speak of. In the next couple of weeks, we'll get to the part of the gospel according to Mark where Jesus and his disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and they're in the midst of a violent storm and the disciples are afraid for their lives. Now, remember, a number of the disciples were professional fishermen. They spent a lot of time on boats on the Sea of Galilee. So they had endured many big storms. So for them to be afraid for their lives meant this was a giant and violent storm and Jesus, at one point, he stands up and he looks out into the storm and he rebukes the wind and he says to the sea, peace, be still. Three words. What happened? Do you remember? The wind ceased, which could have been a coincidence, right? I mean, I could stand up in a boat and say, peace, be still. And if the timing worked out right, that could be the time when the wind would stop. But you know what wouldn't stop? The violent waves. They would go on for a number of hours, right? But immediately the sea became calm. Jesus says a word and his word performs the thing he says. It comes to fruition. If we rewind all the way back to the beginning of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, we read, Then God said, Let there be light. What happened? There was light. He just said it. And it came to pass. The word of the Lord actually performs the very thing that it says. So Jesus' words, they inform, yes, they transform. Amazing, even better, they do the stuff. They do the things 
that they speak of. And as we make our way through the gospel according to Mark, we're going to see that Mark is keenly interested in how the gospel transforms and performs. He's keenly interested in the action. How does what Jesus teaches and says, how does that affect people? How does it change people's lives? What does it accomplish? And the gift of Dr. Gordon, Gordon Fee, the scholar on fire that I just introduced you to, was that he was a world-class scholar. He got his PhD from USC. And his thoughtful biblical interpretation was aimed not just at informing us, although I've learned a lot of information from Gordon Fee. But his biblical interpretation was aimed not on just informing us, but on actually transforming us. And in fact, being touched by lightning so that our spirits might light up and become awakened to the work and presence of the Holy Spirit through God's word in the world and in our lives, empowering people like you and me to follow Jesus out those doors and be light in a dark world. In today's episode in Mark chapter 2, Jesus says to Levi, follow me. Don't let what happens be lost on you because maybe you've read this a number of times. This is astounding. Jesus says two words, follow me. And Levi, he divests himself of all that was precious to him. He turns away from all of that. He lays it down and he follows Jesus. Let me ask you this. We think that Levi um, probably had a number of interactions with Jesus before this moment. Levi certainly was aware of Jesus, was hearing stories about Jesus, was a witness to some of the amazing things that Jesus was doing. But nevertheless, some strange dude comes up to you and says, follow me. What are you going to do? I got a hair appointment later. Sorry. I got some laundry to do, right? Jesus, but Jesus is no ordinary guy, right? He has a kind of gravitational pull about him. And it's not just because he has a dynamic personality. He's magnetic because he's the son of God. He's the Lord of the universe in human form. And though people aren't necessarily articulating that yet, they can tell something is different. This man's word has power. He says, follow me, and I'm compelled to follow him. So Levi follows Jesus. Now, Levi was a tax collector, right? And as a tax collector, that placed him on the very bottom of the respectability scale. Nobody liked Levi. In fact, they hated Levi. Tax collectors were notorious thieves. What they would do is they would skim off the top the taxes they would collect on behalf of the Roman Empire. So, for example, uh, if you went to Levi's tax booth and you owed $10,000 in taxes, Levi would say, great, that'll be $13,000, and you would have no choice but to pay all of it. And then Levi would stuff his pockets with $3,000 of your money and then turn the $10,000 of owed taxes into the Roman government. And there's nothing you could do about it. So he ripped people off all the time. But in addition to do that, to doing that, Levi um, was a betrayer. Like he betrayed his people. Levi was a Jew, and he lived here in the Judean, uh, the Galilean countryside, where there were many, many Jews. But he betrayed his fellow Jews, his neighbors, his brothers and sisters, in order to work for the Roman government, 
who was the enemy, the occupying military enemy. And what Levi did was he was fattening his own pockets, his own bank accounts, at the expense of the people who used to be his friends, his neighbors, his people. This is why one New Testament scholar described the likely scene of Levi's tax booth uh, near the shore of Lake uh, Galilee, of the Sea of Galilee. Levi sat near the lake at a table. Around him were piles of money and account books and fish, but few friends. If you'd asked the locals what they thought about Levi, the tax collectors, the tax collector, you would have heard words like despicable, deplorable, dreadful, disgraceful, damnable, even demon-possessed. It's difficult to exaggerate how low his social standing was in terms of his reputation among his neighbors. And you know what? These types of people, these uh, disreputable type of people, they tended to be those who were most often drawn to Jesus. Levi, the disreputable tax collector, he's touched by lightning. So he does a 180. He divests himself of all of his malpractice. He um, rejects his allegiance to the Roman regime and his growing bank account. And instead, he pledges allegiance to a new king. He pledges allegiance to Jesus. And he follows him. Now, pledging allegiance to Jesus meant that he was transformed. Levi was transformed from a thief into a servant. So rather than misappropriating people's funds, people's money, he began ministering to the needs of people alongside Jesus. Levi left his crooked way of life behind. But you know what he didn't leave behind? Levi did not leave behind his crooked friends, his crooked colleagues. Levi turned away from his own malpractice, but he did not turn away from his friends. And so in verse 15, we're told that Levi hosts this big old party at his house where there are a whole bunch of other tax collectors and disreputable sinners like him gathered along with Jesus and his disciples. We're also told that there are some Pharisees, some teachers of the religious law there as well. And they are scandalized by the social strata that, the, uh, that Levi has invited to come sit for dinner. They're scandalized. How could Jesus and his disciples associate with such scumbags? And I use that offensive term on purpose because that's what the religious leaders, that's what the Pharisees thought of the people who were gathered around the table at Levi's house. This is when Jesus says the following words, and this really is the punchline today. Jesus says, you know, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, in other words, well, but those who know they are sinners, in other words, those who know they are sick. The reason that so often the types of people who are drawn to Jesus are these disreputable types is because these are the folks who tend to have a keen sense of their need. These are the folks who tend to know that they have a problem or problems these are the folks who tend to have a sense of their own sinfulness. Levi was drawn to Jesus because Levi had a sense of his own crooked ways. He knew that he was getting rich at the expense of his neighbors. 
He knew that everybody hated him. He was an outcast, surrounded by piles of money and no friends. He knew he was a sinner. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to Levi in this story. You may not be ripping off all your neighbors through some uh, complicated tax scheme or pyramid scheme, but everybody's got a story. Everybody's got a story. Everybody's got a past. And sometimes those pasts crop up their ugly heads in our present. And Jesus has come to call people like you. Jesus has come to get people like you. Jesus has come to invite people like you to his table. People like Levi and other disreputable folks. People who know that they are sinners. Jesus compares himself to a doctor here. I mean, what kind of doctor would he be if he only associated with people who were really healthy? That wouldn't be very good doctor, would he? Your spiritual illness, your sin, is no barrier for Jesus. In fact, it's kind of like a prerequisite requisite for Jesus to engage with you. In fact, without this primary prerequisite of this sense of need, there could be no healing for you. There could be no healing for me. Because if we had no sense of need, then you or I would never be compelled to actually go to Jesus, who is the sole source of the healing that we do need, but maybe we don't yet know that we need. Levi knows he needs it. He knows he's a sinner. He also knows that his friends are sinners too. He knows that these men and women were also in need of a savior. In need of someone to nourish them, rescue them, befriend them. Say to them, you are my daughter, you are my son, and with you I'm well pleased. And that's our invitation today. Well, it's kind of the second invitation. The first invitation is, maybe you can relate to Levi. You're invited to this table. You're invited into the family of God. Jesus wants you. Just like he said to Levi, he's saying to you, come, follow me. Come on. I want you. And the second invitation for us this morning is this question. How, how is Jesus calling you to extend the hospitality, to extend this kind of hospitality to those who might be considered disreputable? Jesus calls Levi to leave behind his crooked ways. But he does not call Levi to leave behind his crooked friends. In fact, it would seem that Jesus was all on board to having a crooked friend dinner. This week I've been thinking of these things as sinner dinners. Now, I would recommend that you never call anything like this a sinner dinner. Um, that if you ever, uh, say, invite someone who doesn't know Jesus over uh, for coffee or tea or lunch or dinner, uh, that you would never call such a thing sinner dinner. In fact, I hope that you will completely forget that I've ever said those two words, sinner dinner. But see, now I know you're not. But that's okay because I want you to remember this, what Jesus is inviting us into. Because if Krista and I are going to host a sinner dinner, the very first two sinners at the dinner table are Krista and me. 
Because we're all sinners in need of God's grace. And are there some other people who also are sinners in need of God's grace? Are there those who maybe have a sense that they are not well, that they are broken, that something is wrong or missing? Those are the folks who were invited to the table of Jesus. Those are the folks that Levi invited over to his house. Those are the folks whom I think today's scripture is encouraging us to invite over to our place. To extend this kind of hospitality to those who need it in a bad way. Thanks for joining our Christ Pacific Sunday Sermon Podcast. To hear more of our sermons, or to subscribe, or to learn how you can be engaged with what we're up to in Huntington Beach, please visit us at cpchb.org.